This week's episode of the 21st Rewrite was recorded in Los Angeles with David Rabinowitz, one of the writers of the 2018 film Black Klansman, which was directed by Spike Lee. Every week on the 21st Rewrite, we talk about a feature film screenplay from the 21st century, and this film ranks so highly among all the films released over the last 20 years, so it was a real honor to have this opportunity. It was exceptionally fun to record this episode, getting to know David and learning more about the amazing way his career has developed over the last few years, the way he goes about working on different elements such as story adaptation, dialogue, research, and working as part of a writing duo. I hope that all of our listeners are well right now, and that this episode provides plenty of insightful ideas for you to think about and some inspiration to use in your own writing. Without further ado, let's get on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell. And I'm Alan Vasquez, and we are here with David Rabinowitz, who is one of the four screenwriters of Black Klansman, which won last year's Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar. And it's a great pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for being here. Good to be here. Thanks for being on the show, David. I think what we wanted to start out with, this is a, a show for screenwriters, so the first question, I think, should be what got you into screenwriting as an individual originally? I started writing when I was like in second grade. I started like, you know, doing like short stories, creative writing. To me, like being able to write, it wasn't any sort of work. You know, now these days when you're a writer, you're like, oh my God, writing is work. But like when I was that young, it's just like kind of playing around. And yet at the same time, you know, you're so young that you don't even realize, oh, this thing that I really like to do, maybe it's something I should pursue. It's like, no, I, I didn't have that sort of context for myself. So around early high school, I started to get into like movies, like seriously, I'd always loved movies, like going to the movie theater and everything. But then I found out there was this whole other dimension of these other films that are amazing, like indie films, classic films, like seeing The Godfather or Godfather Part Two for the first time, and then like foreign films. And once I saw that whole world opened up to me, and me and some of my friends, including my now writing partner, Charlie Wachtel, we just kind of started getting into movies in a serious way. So that meant seeking out these films, making films ourselves, you know, taking a video camera, learning about editing. But then there was this other thing. Well, I, I like writing. I like movies and filmmaking. I can put them together. I can just sit in my parents' basement on their computer and open up Microsoft Word and start writing a, a movie script because that's where it all starts. When you make a movie with your friends, you need your friends. You have to get everybody together. It takes all this time while writing. You just go sit in front of a computer, in front of a, a keyboard and start typing. So I was in high school when I wrote my first scripts and they were absolutely terrible. <laughs> but it was super fun. Like I was having a good time and I knew they were terrible because mm. I was comparing them to like, I don't know, Coen Brothers and Tarantino. And I'm like, this is not anywhere near that. But like, I can see like, oh, maybe this whole script that I wrote, there's one worthwhile scene. There's something to hold on to. And so, yeah, I, I pretty much went from there. From the time I was like 16, I kind of had this, you could call it a dream to want to be a a screenwriter yeah. even though it seemed so you know i grew up in new jersey uh, it just seems so everything's so far away but it keeps kind of coming back to like focusing on the process versus the result the process was fun so i wasn't so obsessed with i need to be a working writer by this age i just want to keep doing it. Hmm. 
No, that's really cool because I mean, I can relate because I've always written in some form since I was a kid. Even I didn't know if it was going to be for films or anything, but I like storytelling. When you're writing, it's such a it could be kind of lonely and you don't see results right away. So it's it's important to sort of celebrate the doing of it as opposed to kind of waiting for like the result. Absolutely, because the result may never come. I think that's a really interesting point that you brought up actually about writing for yourself because we tend to, as we get older, at least in my experience, I've noticed, I did write a lot when I was younger, but I didn't consider it that. And I certainly had a progression where in my teenage years, I thought poetry was the thing to do. Mm -hmm. Writing was was poetry. And then that turned into fiction. And then I got interested in screenwriting myself. So I went through this progression. But tracing it back to an early route, it is something that wasn't really set out as a job or a career or anything like that. And I mean, I was aware of authors as, right. a, as an institution like J.R.R. Tolkien and people like that who were big in the imagination for young people in Britain at the time, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, certainly the same kind of experience, I think. Absolutely. And another thing is when you're in school, and obviously, you know, it's important when you're in school in like English class to like write essays and stuff and like mm -hmm. reading comprehension stuff. But I, I know for me personally, when I was given the opportunity by a teacher saying, hey, for the next hour or so, you're going to be writing, but it's just any story that you want to come up with. That's incredibly freeing. And suddenly it doesn't feel like school anymore. Mm -hmm. It feels a lot more like play. And so I think that's where my brain was. But you're right, we lose that. There's something about being really young and just kind of going off where your imagination and your creativity are taking you and you're right. not so critical of mm. every piece of work you put down, every word you put down, or every sentence mm. you put down like we do when we're adults because that's just how our brain... Yeah, there's no filter. Just, there's no filter, right. It's just right. a stream of consciousness that's just sort of coming out. Just coming out, right, yeah. exactly. And that's what happens when you get on a flow, I feel. When you're writing and all of a sudden you're not judging what you're writing and it's just like all coming out. I think that's like the best parts about screenwriting for me is when I can get there and like not judge myself. Definitely. And yeah. every single day that I sit down to work on a script, I'm trying to achieve that mm -hmm. flow. Sometimes I get there, sometimes I don't, but it's, I'm always trying to. And when you do hit that, it's great. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it only lasts yeah. like, you know, 30 minutes or whatever, but you seize mm -hmm. on that and you take full advantage of it because you know you're going to get some good work done. Definitely. I remember actually about that age, some of the films that were really inspiring to me were, for example, Once Upon a Time in the West, yeah. Apocalypse Now. Yeah. I remember that one just completely opening my mind to yeah. all these different possibilities. Paris, Texas had a huge, profound influence on me. What kind of films influenced you while you were a teenager? I mean, it's super cliche to say, but it's true. Early Tarantino was big. I tell the story, the first time I saw Reservoir Dogs was in the, the basement of Charlie's parents' house, you know, my writing partner. You know, seeing that in, in Pulp Fiction, obviously. But then, honestly, like, when I was in, like, seventh or eighth grade, seeing Godfather for the first time was huge. Uh, also, definitely before that, earlier in my life, Spielberg, Jaws, and mm. Jurassic Park, of course, were huge. But then, you know, when I got more into indie stuff, it was beyond Tarantino, definitely Coen Brothers, Fargo. And even some stuff like John Sayles' Lone Star. Have you ever seen that film? No, it's, I have not. It's really incredible with Chris Cooper. Oh, he's it, great. Yeah, it's yeah. from the mid-90s. Just a movie like that, just, just seeing that, especially when you're used to a steady diet of movies that are mainstream, which is definitely nothing wrong with that, but then seeing that 
there's this world of other types of movies that can do this other thing. And a film like Lone Star, uh, which is set in Texas in like a border town, is almost like watching a novel, but in movie form. Mm. Multiple characters, multiple perspectives, different story threads. And it's a drama, but there's also thriller elements. And it's also funny. And it's also thematically rich and it was like seeing movies like that kind of just opened my eyes of like oh movies can be just more than entertainment that's great yeah, yeah. lone star i have to check that out i think a movie that did that for me was uh, eternal sunshine because you know you're used to a certain type of films and then something new comes and all of a sudden like there's a part of your brain that kind of wakes up and you're exploring a bunch of different things so in terms of with black Klansman, with this script in particular what was it that drew you to that subject, to this story in particular? Sure. Well, I, I can answer that and also sort of answer how it came about, if that yeah, makes yeah. sense. So I went to school in Connecticut at Quinnipiac University for production. I like, majored in like media production. It was very kind of practical education about you know shooting, editing. And from there, I got a job working in the video department of the Wall Street Journal, shooting interviews, kind of running the, the studio, editing stuff, new, news packages. And that was in New York for a few years after college. At that time, Charlie and some of our other friends had moved out to LA already. And so I was there in New York working in news and kind of looking at my friends being out here, being like, I want to get out there. Because mm. ultimately, that's really where you go. Like, New York is great, but if you want to be a screenwriter, you come to LA, right? right. So eventually, uh, in 2012, I made my way out here. And Charlie and I started writing together. We wrote a pilot together and, you know, it went well enough that we're like, we should continue this. We should find something else. D did you try a comedy or a drama? Oh, so the pilot that the we pilot, wrote was a, yeah. was a drama. I wrote some comedy. I'd written a bunch of scripts by myself, some of which were more drama, some of which were more comedy. Charlie and I, we write more, I guess, drama or like thriller. And that pilot was drama. It was set in the world of like college basketball. Working with a partner on any creative endeavor, but specifically writing, like it's tough. There's a lot of, I'm sure if you guys have, have ventured mm -hmm. into that. Alan tends to write with a partner and I tend to write independently. Yeah, no, I, I totally so, yeah, get the whole. We both got the different experiences, I think. Yeah. I read a lot on my own, but the, the thing about the collaborative process, for me in particular, is just uh, there's a lot of compromise that sometimes has to be done. There's a lot of, when it's really working, it's great. Yeah. There's just this cool, like, you know, back and forth that's just like a flow. Right. But in, in this case, you were saying, what is it about about him that you guys have that connection in terms of creative connection? I, I think it's a, the fact that we were friends first, mm. you know, mm -hmm. and that you really need to be able to tell the other person pretty directly if something's working or not working. You're going to have disagreements all the time. We disagree constantly but as much as possible make sure it's about what's on the page you know and not anything else and so for us you know we had gone through that process of writing a pilot which is not an easy thing especially a drama pilot that i think that was the first pilot that i'd ever written i'd only written features before then it's hard so it went well enough that we're like we should continue and then credit where credit's due charlie found one of our former classmates had posted something on Facebook about this guy named Ron Stallworth, who was a detective in the Colorado Springs Police Department in the 70s, who had this crazy story. And in the article, there was a link to this book that he had written, a memoir. It wasn't even bookstores. It was only available on like Kindle. Mm. Did, uh, did he self-publish it? It was with a very small 
publisher okay. who was like a, a friend of his. And so he read it. He gave it to me. You know, hey, you should check this out. We read it. You ask, like, what was compelling about it? Well, there's a few things. First of all, you know, everybody always talks about the high concept idea. Well, Black Klansman. By the way, the memoir was called Black Klansman. No extra K in the middle. That came later. Mm-hmm. Two words. The title itself is a high concept. Like, what is this about? This is something that is just compelling in itself. But then also when you dig deeper and you read the book, you said, did you read, read yeah, the book? Yeah, Okay, cool. We could book. talk about that. <laughs> Ron's kind of an interesting guy. Yeah. And, you know, he's our protagonist. And it seems like this guy is interesting enough to carry a movie. He's interesting enough for an audience to be with him for, for two hours. And then also it was the idea, Charlie and I both separately were talking about it. We're like, the KKK has always been kind of this like thing that fascinated and terrified us from when we were very young. And it's like, it felt like more films should sort of tackle that subject. So it was those sort of three things, other things too, but those were the main things that kind of jumped out at us. Also, I mean, the fact that it was this true story that nobody knew about. It was just, it was just very compelling all around. And so there was uh, like an email address for the publisher and we just like reached out. We're like, hey, is this available? What's going on with it? The publisher got us in contact with Ron himself. And we basically just asked Ron for permission to adapt it on spec. We never got the rights. It was kind of a you know, gentleman's deal, you know. So you didn't deal. option it at all? There was no, op- no okay. we did not. We couldn't. Wow. I mean, we didn't really have the, you know, any money to do so. Right. And Ron said, sure. Well, okay, let me back up. We also, we, we did some selling. Like we gave him and his manager a one sheet saying like, hey, this is what we're thinking. This is tonally what we're thinking. Some like comps and stuff like that. And here are some like changes that we would make right off the bat. Ron said, okay, I'll, I'll give you guys a shot. I just want to be involved. So there started a process of the three of us, me, Charlie, and Ron, working on this thing where we wrote like an outline and we gave it to Ron and he gave us notes on like every page. We wrote like a scriptment, we gave it to Ron. He gave us notes on every page. We wrote the first draft, second draft, third draft. He gave us notes. And these were, you know, extensive phone calls that we would have with him. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I don't think a lot of, you know, screenwriters who are adapting true stories go to that length or maybe the opportunity is not there but to have the person it's based on have such involvement in not just their tale but in the creative process as well yeah Yeah. for sure interestingly i just interviewed um glenn patterson who's a writer from belfast who made a film called good vibrations which he wrote with a writing partner and it was about this guy called terry hooley who opened a record store in belfast in the middle of the troubles when anyone would be absolutely insane to try and open a shop in central Belfast because bombs were going off every other week and it was an extremely dangerous place to be. And Terry believed he could bring these two communities, the Catholics and the Protestants, together through music. And they had a very similar process where they would go out with Terry and he would tell them their stories. They would write the script for him and he would check it. And I think it leads to a very authentic kind Mm -hmm. of portrayal that isn't necessarily possible with every real biographical subject. Of course, many are passed away and others wouldn't be able to do that kind of commitment. But I think it does, Good Vibrations and Black Klansmen have that in common, that their main protagonist feels very alive and memorable and a a character you want to spend that time with. Definitely. And yeah, it was a great opportunity for us to be able to 
have Ron at our disposal. It wasn't just, you know, the book was the main thing because he had Mm -hmm. written this book. But then we could always just talk to him, ask him questions and also get his feedback because that was just built into the process that we were doing. But also there could be a big drawback when you're involving the real person because, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, there have to be some liberties and some cases a lot of liberties taken with the true story. But it was actually the best of both worlds because Ron off the bat was like, I I understand that you're going to do some things to make this a little bit more of a Hollywood thing. Mm. And we're like, great. So he's he's giving us the freedom to to make it more of a movie while still being there to, you know, give us the feedback when something is like, well, actually, you know, if you're a cop, you wouldn't do this. Mm. It was kind of the best of both worlds. So I'll, I'll just take you to how, how the movie happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. We were in the middle of this process. We were not professional screenwriters. Charlie had worked as an assistant in the industry before then. He knew a lot of people. He knew this producer named Sean Reddick. And he mentioned, uh, while we were working on this, by the way, this is summer of 2015. We were working on it till the end of the year. And he mentioned it to Sean. And Sean got interested and he brought us in to pitch it to him and this guy he was working with, uh, Ray Mansfield at QC Entertainment. And so we pitched it to them. And they're like, wow, this is really cool. This is really interesting. When the script is done, we want to read it. We are working on this thing called Get Out with Jordan Peele. Jordan might be interested in this. And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh, wow, I'm a big comedy person. He's, you know, Key and Peele is right. great. But you hadn't got a sense of what Jordan Peele's films would be like Nobody at this point. Yeah. Nobody, even the people involved, I mean, they were excited about it. They were in early pre-production on Get Out by this point, mm-hmm. which is 2015. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody knew what Get Out was going to be. And so we wrote the script. We finished the script that we were happy with, that Ron was happy with. We gave it into Sean and those guys. They gave it to Jordan. Jordan became our producer. And I like to say, like, this whole thing wasn't completely real until, this is 2016 now, we go to the offices of the producers and Jordan comes in for a meeting and we sit down with Jordan for an hour and talk about the script. And then it went from, you know, this is just something that we're doing in a vacuum to, oh, this is actually real. Mm. But we still didn't know how real it was going to be because five months after that meeting, Get Out happened. Mm. And I remember going to the Arclight in Hollywood for an 8 p.m. showing of Get Out, the Cinerama Dome, 8 p.m. Friday opening weekend. It was packed. Suddenly, I have, I mean, obviously, I want this to be a good movie, but I have personal stake in the mo- this movie's <laughs> success. And right, I'm looking right. around, and it's completely packed. And that movie played better than any movie I'd seen in a very long time. And... People were walking out, like talking about it in the lobby, and there was like this energy about it. And I'm just, I'm just thinking, like, okay, this movie's gonna be a hit. And also, I think my life just changed because if this movie's a hit, that what does that mean for our project? Hmm. And sure enough, it was the sleeper hit of the year. And Jordan goes from this respected sketch actor to the most sought after filmmaker in Hollywood pretty much overnight. And we were his next project. And so he could do anything he wanted. He brought the film to Spike. And then once Spike was yeah. involved, things just kind of went from there. I think it's really interesting to try and put this into the perspective of the timeline as well. This is 2015 up until... When when did the film start production? 2018? Uh, it, early it, 2018? It started in late 2017. So and then, 
It premiered in yeah. Cannes in, 20, in May 2018 and then came out in theaters in August 2018. So in the space of about three years, three years. yeah, such a transformation between being at the stage of thinking, this is a cool idea and we'd like to write it for fun to this is becoming a huge, a, a major production. Yeah, yes. what a journey. Yes, and you <laughs> could see also how the serendipity and how fortunate we were of the, the timing of everything, mm-hmm. of, like, of everything, you know. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where, you know, it kind of also reflects where the political sort of atmosphere was leading up to. So it's kind of, I mean, I'm sure when you were writing it, it was before the new administration. So it wasn't like you were thinking, well, I'm not sure. You weren't really thinking. It reflects where we're at politically. When we were writing the initial drafts, it was a very different world. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, this was history. At, at that stage. Exactly. This was set in the 70s. It was a historical exactly. film. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Obama was in office. Trump wasn't a thing yet. When we were doing the rewrite, mm. after Jordan's notes, the Trump thing had started happening. So we were kind of like pointing it that, in that direction a little bit. But it wasn't until Spike and his writing partner, Kevin Wilmot, came in to do their revision mm-hmm. that it was all, it, 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 it had happened. Like Trump right. was in office by that point. So um, they really took that and, and ran with it. So could I ask, the draft that you had that you actually sold to Jordan Peele's company, what was the story like at that stage? Were there any major differences between the version that we saw in the cinema and the published version of the screenplay released for the Academy Awards? I wouldn't say there's major differences. There are a lot of differences, but not major differences. So um, structurally and plot-wise, it was quite similar? Quite similar. But there was a lot of stuff that Spike and Kevin did. And what I'd like to say is um, what you think Spike did, he probably did. Because there's a lot of stuff in the movie that's very Spike. And that yeah. only only he would attempt and only he could get away with, really. So just for example, like in the finished film, starting with Gone with the Wind, Mm. and then the whole thread of kind of film criticism that goes through there, you know? Yeah, the one thing I actually found very interesting in the the book by Ron Stallworth is he actually references the film The Birth of a Nation twice in the book. So it actually is quite prominent in his own story. But it, it also is interesting how you kind of reverse that almost a hundred years later you're doing a very different film just showing just how much time and the mentality of americans has changed in in that time period yeah and and it's the birth of nation thing is interesting because in our draft it was almost like a little bit of an afterthought it was like after the initiation they watch birth of a nation but it wasn't like a big thing what spike did was made it into a whole Mm -hmm. scene really Mm -hmm. Visually very shocking, that scene yeah. in particular. Yeah. Because with, it's it's contrasting those images from the original film to the clan cheering it on and responding to it yes. in such a, a way that, in fact, is one of the few parts of the film that actually does turn my stomach a little bit is watching the clansmen react to the film and, and, and cheering. I mean, visually, it just really strikes you because you're seeing the new and the history of that. Yeah, it's visually very, very strong. Um, but you were saying that that it was more of an afterthought, so you didn't really think it was going to be 
a huge centerpiece because I think that's something that a lot of people talk about when they come from watching the film was that that was one of the most powerful moments in it. Yeah, and that, like Spike really blew that part up into mm -hmm. a scene. Another example is earlier in the film when Ron goes undercover for the Kwame Ture speech. Mm. That scene is in our draft, but the speech is much shorter because, you know, when we wrote it, it's like, well, it's not really about the speech. It's more about Ron being caught between these two worlds. But then Spike comes and, you know, he loves speeches and he's really good at filming speeches. So he and Kevin they wrote a full speech and they shot a full speech and it works, you know, because of the way it's photographed and also, you know, Corey Haw Hawkins is a very good actor. They make it its, its own thing. And there's that element of Ron's reaction to it and him, you know, he's supposed to be undercover, but then he's listening to the speech and he's like, actually, this guy, what he's saying makes a lot of sense. So that's still in there. But then there's there's a lot more. It's just we never would have in our draft written an entire speech. And that's very specific to, I think, that perspective in terms of culture. Because a lot of what is said, it felt very deep because they were talking about how they've been failing themselves and being inauthentic. So I think it could only have been written by someone like Spike. Exactly. And I love that part of the film as well. It's that's interesting really in the book as well to include that perspective Ron basically brings that up because it it's something that happened to him very early on in his career, and that's how he yes got into becoming an undercover operative. Yeah, mm -hmm. but he also brings up that story mainly because he was sat next to a German woman, a white German woman at the rally, and how funny he thought of it all was having some white people there yeah. present. And actually, in the film version, that's it, that scene is not going to be included because it's actually the place he's going to meet Patrice. And so there's that budding romance is kind of the, it needs to start at that point. Exactly. There was actually, there was an early draft where we had the scene with the German woman in there, but it was like, you know, yeah. we're talking about feature writing. It's all about efficiency. What's going to, what's going to be the most efficient way to do this. And right. once we ended up with the Patrice character, which was not in early drafts, that was, that was an evolution. It only made sense for him to meet her there and that was actually one of jordan peele's contributions was because we had kind of gone back and forth at one point there was a character who was ron's real life wife or who would become his real life wife and ron eventually would prefer us to not use her in it mm -hmm. and he said but you can you know you can fictionalize somebody when we we're having this conversation jordan came in and said this person should be ideologically opposed to the cops to make her ideologically opposed to basically Ron's point of view and forcing him to be undercover when he's with her too. That was a very smart suggestion from him. Patrice as a character didn't exist until Correct. Jordan gave you that suggestion. Oh, we, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. We were kind of creating her, but she wasn't firmly who she was in the movie until Jordan The came. Black Students' Union president exactly. involved in politics, all yes. of that stuff. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because in Ron Storworth's account of the story, it does feel like there's only really these two worlds, the world of the police and the investigation, and then the Klan, which is this, in his view, this very useless, bumbling, idiotic group of hillbillies essentially that are really just trying to intimidate people haven't really thought much of it through 
And they're not really a threat, though, either in that sense. He's just trying to keep tabs on them. Yes. And, and so and then get to David Duke. We can we can talk about that for a second, because that was one of the first things that jumped out at us. And it's like, well, if they're not a threat, do we have a movie? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, well, they, they are bumbling and you kind of do want to portray them as that to an extent. But there also has to be this other element of they could do real damage. Mm. Right. And so when we first approached Ron, we told him we wanted to make two major changes to the true story. So this is while you're writing the spec script. This is while we're writing or actually before, like while we're preparing, while we're basically convincing Ron to to work with us. Mm. We said, A, we want to make the bomb threat real. I think in the book he talks about there were some, they were talking about maybe bombing gay bars in the area, I think. We said, well, we just want to extrapolate that a little bit and basically say it's it's real. It's a real thing just because we need the investigation to have a very tangible, specific goal. If it's just them kind of monitoring the clan, well, that kind of peters out. It just, it'll it'll give it some some structure and some drive. And the second thing was to make Adam Driver's, well, the, the character that was eventually played by Adam Driver, to make him Jewish. In the true story, he's not. In the film, you know, he he is. And those were our two major things off the bat with, with Ron. So that's in order to raise the stakes because having him Jewish kind of, well, he's at stake too, right? Exactly. That's number one. It's raise the stakes. Right. If he's undercover as just a, some guy, some Christian guy, there, there isn't as much danger. Right. Um, but th- there's more. There's also like thematically, like making these two guys who are the major characters of the film, Ron is dealing with, you know, these two sides of himself, mm. uh, these two worlds. And so we also, we wanted to give that to his partner too, so that they're mirrors of each other. And then also like Charlie and I were both Jewish. So that's like, that's our way in to the story too. And, and then ultimately we ended up, I, I wouldn't say we did a huge amount of research because we had the book and we had Ron. We didn't have to go to so many other sources like we did, but like not so much. But one of the things that we did was kind of do a little bit of a deep dive on David Duke, who's an interesting guy. For him, it's like, yeah, I mean, he's he's against so many different types of people, but he always comes back to the Jews for whatever reason. So it kind of made sense in all of these ways to make the partner Jewish. Mm-hmm. Even then, even though you have them as sort of being a, a major threat and essentially being the villains of the story, I do feel even within there, there was like shades of, they're not like, outright villainous in their energy or in the way they're presented except for maybe Felix you know he's right. definitely and his wife uh, but you have a couple of other characters where you just see where they're just lost in the ideology and they're not necessarily like like your typical villain if you were to just see them at a bar or whatever it's just that the ideology comes up on top as being the main source of antagonism in the film right. which I also really enjoyed that it wasn't just like black and white like there's this shade in between and then you have people in the cops who are also you know there there's different shades in there as well and i was just wondering if that was intentional to kind of have different like a spectrum of characters who are not just one note and have them a little bit more fleshed out like that yeah definitely i'm glad you said that that was an intention with the clan specifically to have that guy who uh, yeah felix who's all the way on that side of the spectrum and then the guy 
Walter, who mm-hmm. is kind of like the, the chapter leader, who is a little bit, you know, obviously he feels this way. He has that ideology, but he's not the type of person that would resort to violence, probably. And yeah, to show that there's friction within this chapter of the KKK, they don't all agree with each other. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that came across. It's almost a bit of dramatic tension that's missing in the story as told in the book because Ron does have this this sense of humor all the way throughout. And he'll just say things like, well, they basically just didn't ever suspect me. They never suspected that they were talking to the other guy on the telephone who was definitely not the man they were meeting in in real life. Right. And that's funny in a storytelling exactly. perspective. But if you're trying to put it on screen, you need that tension there. Exactly. Why are they not asking? And Felix is that character that is mm. paranoid, that is monitoring him, that's following and trying to find Ron's home address and all of this stuff. Exactly. Completely. First time I watched it, it was so funny. But it's not trying to be funny. Like, it's just the situation itself is just a very funny situation. And the fact that it was real... I think it's what makes the whole thing a little bit more um, like, I don't think you guys meant to do a comedy per se, but there was a lot of, uh, a lot of humor that I think kind of alleviated a lot of the drama. So I think it made it more accessible, I think for a lot of people. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad that you say that. I I don't think that we wrote jokes or anything, but it was just more the, the premise itself is there's a lot of absurdity to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Just naturally. So it'll just be funny as long as you're having these characters react to this absurd situation in a grounded way. And yeah, and, and that was important. And uh, I'm happy that a lot of those comedic elements made it through to the end. Uh, I think Alec Baldwin in the beginning kind of <laughs> set the tone of it. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, and so that was a spike scene through and through. Well, I should say Spike and Kevin, because they, yeah, they, yeah, the they way both wrote the draft. The way it's written on the page, it's very sinister and matter of fact. Exactly. And, and then this, this presenter just talking the most racist, yes. uh, paranoid viewpoints, yes. creating a propaganda film. And then Alec Baldwin turns this into something completely different. <laughs> right, with, right. With the, the coughing and the stuttering. And and I believe that that was all on the day of him just kind of messing up. And mm. then Spike and Barry Alexander Brown, the, the editor, deciding we should keep some of these outtakes in. Oh, so some of the, <laughs> so they the actually end. made it in. That's yeah, funny. yeah, and it's it feels genuine, and it's funny. It's like watching, watching that scene with an audience. There's people start to laugh, and it's like it's kind of putting people off balance a little bit. And it's a good way of. Uh, I thought it was a very smart decision by Spike announcing the type of film. Yeah, that you're about to watch. It set the tone. And how was how was your experience? You know, seeing it for the first time. Like, was that at a screening or was that at a premiere? It was at the the world premiere at Cannes. Mm. Okay. Uh, so it was really, cr- you know, Ken is like the most glamorous mm-hmm. event maybe in the world, and I'm not a glamorous person, so it was very interesting to be there. The day of the premiere, we were at this cocktail hour before the screening, and we were kind of like meeting, you know, meeting the actors for the first time, and you know, saying hi to all the producers and and stuff, and then we're like put in this like motorcade of these cars and we're driven to where you know they have all the big screenings and then you go get out and there's the red carpet with the steps and there's just a bunch of photographers on either side and everybody's in you know tuxedos and you start walking up and charlie's smart he's like 
let's get behind like Adam Driver because like no one's going to take any <laughs> pictures of us, but they're going to be taking pictures of him. And sure enough, you see pictures from Cannes from the premiere of Adam Driver and you just see like us in the background. <laughs> uh, looks like we're Photoshopped in, but no, like we're, we're right there. Um, and so we walk up the steps and we go into this massive theater and everyone else is already seated. We're like the last ones. And I, I'd heard that it was like the hottest ticket. I went to like a suite one of the hotels to get my ticket and the the person giving it to me was like by the way you should know like everyone's trying to get a ticket i had to pull some favors to get chris nolan in it was like that kind of crazy thing and so i i have a i have a pretty small bladder and you know i had a few drinks at the the cocktail hour so i'm thinking so stupidly i'm thinking this is like any other movie theater experience i'll go find my seat then i'll go to the bathroom no it's not like i don't even know if there are bathrooms in this thing so i've got kind of a bladder thing going but you know we sit down and like a minute later the movie starts and suddenly i don't care about my bladder anymore it's just kind of a crazy experience i I couldn't even really i i saw it multiple times after at the there was an la premiere there's a new york premiere and then i saw it a few times in theaters with like friends just to see it so i could more properly process it but that first time it was just kind of like oh like oh my god like what's happening what was the last thing you'd seen that you had written that had been on a screen was it something you'd worked on yourself yes yeah this is the first time that it was like yeah i mean there was no this is this is the the biggest jump you could possibly (laughs) what a great start (laughs) yeah right yeah right, right Um, yeah, I'm just curious because, you know, from a writing perspective, like putting myself in your shoes and writing a script and then handing that over to a group of really talented people to go and then do their thing. And then you go and see what they did with it. You know, I'm just wondering, like, what was the best surprise and what was kind of something that maybe you might have had some reservations at first or, you know, what was some of the your expectations versus what you saw? Well, I'll say this. So we we handed the script off to Spike and Kevin to do their, their draft. And then when the film was in pre-production, we were invited to the offices of the producers to read the shooting script that they had written. So hmm. things weren't mostly a complete surprise. It's very strange, by the way. This is my first time doing this to read the next draft of something that you'd been working on for a while and then it's gone through mm-hmm. another writer because it's like you see your stuff there and then you see this stuff that isn't you and it's just your brain has to kind of process that. Right. I thought Spike and Kevin made a lot of smart decisions. So for example, that initiation scene that ends with the birth of the nation, it's intercut with the scene of Harry Belafonte telling the story of uh, the lynching in Waco. That was not in our draft at all it's like it's going back to spike loving these speeches these presentational things not anything that we could have gotten away with but he makes it work really well it's it's interesting there was this character that we had in our script who was a lieutenant of ron's who was a real guy who was kind of he was sort of a foil he wasn't completely villainous but he was sort of a foil he would alternately kind of act as a little bit of a mentor to Ron, but then also be kind of a bad dude to Ron. And what they had done is they had basically split that character off into two different characters. The chief of police ended up taking some of his qualities, and then that other, that really racist cop took his other. So he... He was split off. And so we did not write that, that really, I think his name was Landers. We didn't write Mm -hmm. that racist guy he was somebody else who was like combined into into 
this one real character. Yeah, and that kind of ties into the same idea as the bomb threat from the KKK. Not something that really happened, but is trying to take other stories that were happening around the same time in different parts of the United States, put it into the center of the action where where this drama is unfolding. Exactly, exactly. Because, so you read the book, right? And so you could see that there are certain scenes from that book that go straight into the movie, pretty much. Like the phone call with David Duke. Like the phone call with David Duke. I was surprised just how you lifted the lines that they had written that scene for themselves. Exactly. It was brilliant. Exactly. And so when we read the book, there were certain scenes where like, these are are going in the movie. These are kind of like our tent poles. Mm -hmm. And so that phone call with David Duke that you're talking about, which was... um, When he says how you can tell the difference between how a white and a black man speak English is how they pronounce the word R. Exactly. Wow. That is is going in. Um, The first time that he has a phone call with the Klan... Not only is that going in the movie, that's probably going to be in the trailer, and it was. That's kind of setting the premise yeah, of the movie. Yeah. We didn't dress that one up much either. I think we just kind of sharpened some things of like, you know, the rest of the cops around him kind of like looking at him while he's going on this racist rant. Him going undercover at the Kwame Ture speech. And then the fact that David Duke comes to Colorado Springs himself and Ron is asked to be his bodyguard. That's that, all real. Yeah, that was one of the things I didn't think could possibly be right. real. Stranger but, than fiction. Stranger than fiction. And we're like, well, this is this is giving us our third act, you know? So we've got mm. some some things in the first act, this phone call that gets us kind of from the first act to the second act, a couple things in the second act, like the David Duke phone call, and then sort of like the outline of a third act. So the fact that the book gave us all that, we put that down, and then na- and now it's like, okay, we have to fill in the rest, mm. right? Which were the main problems that were standing out to you once you'd laid out that first initial draft? The reason I'm asking this in particular is because I'm writing a historical piece okay. myself right now. Yeah. And that is one of the main questions I have. Where do I step away from the events, the chronology yes. of what really happened and start to adapt things? So with Black Klansman, what was the first big problem that you saw there that you had to You know to what, you hit fix. on it earlier when you said Ron's attitude toward the clan was like, these guys are idiots and they're not going to do anything and we're just kind of hanging out with them and monitoring them. Well, that's, in real life, that's great and it's terrible for a movie. Mm-hmm. So how do we up the stakes? How do we increase the... Because I'm always, I'm obsessed with narrative momentum, right? Mm. How do we up the stakes, increase narrative momentum and just pull this thing to... We know where we're going. We're going to that third act with David Duke coming to Colorado Springs. Like a lot of scripts, it's the second act is the hardest thing, right? So what were the things that we did? We, we literalized the bomb plot. We made him Jewish to up the stakes. But then we also kind of... Um, it was this sort of buddy comedy element to it. Like buddy... Co- uh, not buddy comedy. Buddy cop element to it between Ron and, and Flip. That kind of carries us through because it's like their relationship. And, and, and that's something that I always have to remind myself because I sometimes will get obsessed with the mechanics, like plot mechanics, whatever you want to call it. But ultimately, it's really about the characters and how they relate to each other. Yeah, and, and you can have similar things. So there's the police chief who tells Ron there's a difference between the way black and white people talk. Yes. There's David Duke telling him 
there's a difference between the way black people and white people talk. And then you also have this scene where Flip and him are imitating each other. And it's there's a completely different dynamic there because they're actually bonding and they're becoming friends. Exactly. And they're imitating each other and and enjoying that whole aspect of it. And it's one of the early comedic moments in the film. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, this is one of those where like the supporting characters really bring the themes up. Like they make it more obvious because they're pulling at different sides of Ron, you know, because you have Patrice who is kind of contradicting something that he fundamentally believes for himself. So yeah, like we were describing all these different scenes. So I mean, I'm not adapting anything, but I also run into the same issues when I'm writing like an original piece where you have very specific beats where you know where the story is going, but then how do I populate the in-betweens to make it more organic to get from point A to point B without getting stuck in such a mechanical, well, this has to happen because we have to get here, as opposed to how can it organically come from the character so that it seems like we're getting there naturally. So I always do struggle with that, but I think you said something that's really important that I try to remember, which is character. You know, it has to feel like it's all organically happening through the character. Exactly. And and the thing you just described is like one of the ever-present quandaries of being a screenwriter or any sort of writer. You know where you have to get to. You are the architect of this thing, but you have to work really hard to make it seem like it wasn't architected, that it just sort of happened and came from the people. Absolutely. Um, w- one quick example, there, there's a scene between Ron and Flip in the records room where they're kind of it's it's a kind of a classic kind of conflict scene where it's these two different points of view they're they're on the same side but they have different points of view and they're kind Mm. of talking talking it through or arguing a little bit and ron is basically saying hey you've got skin in the game you have to work with me on this and what we needed to do is we also we this was about the part of the movie where we needed ron to call up david duke and basically what we did there was just make a causation in order to get in deeper with these guys, I need my membership card and there's like a, a, a backlog, administrative backlog, which was also true. Yep. And it's like, well, what am I going to do? Okay, I'm just going to call up the office. And so that led to, I believe it's the next scene of him calling David Duke. So it's something that had to happen, but within the context of the story, it kind of, it just makes sense. Like you buy it as as right. an audience of like, yeah, of right. course he would. He would call up. And I guess, you know, since David Duke runs the thing, like he would be the one answering on the other (laughs) end of the line. Yeah, it all makes sense. I do have a question about the uh, Charlottesville footage at the very end of the film. That obviously happened after you started writing the script. Yes. So that's an added element. Yeah. How did you feel when all that stuff was added to the film? The shooting script that we read had like one paragraph at the end. So they had just... I think decided when we read it, they had just decided to put it in. So it wasn't a complete surprise. I just didn't know what it was going to be exactly. The first time I saw it, I was a little torn on it because I thought, well, while this footage is undeniably powerful, does it need the context of the previous two hours to have that power? But that was only the first time I saw the film. I'd seen it multiple times subsequently. And also, since I've done a number, Charlie and I have done a number of Q&As, when we do a Q&A after the film, you don't watch the whole film, but you you get there and you watch the last 10 minutes. So I've seen that ending a lot of times mm-hmm. and I've just mm-hmm. seen how audiences respond to it. And so ultimately, I think it's it was the right call just because just the, just the way that audiences respond to it so 
it's just so effective that um, I, I've come around to it. Yeah, I think I had a similar feeling to you the first time I saw it and on the most recent rewatch in preparation for this podcast. It felt like it belonged there. And I think as time passes and we become a little more distanced from that and we see it within the context of the longer story as opposed to this was something that was on the news a couple of months ago and why is, why is this at the end of the film? Suddenly, it's it's it seems like it really does belong there, right? That that was my thought too. Whenever so, I'm like, wait, but this is this is not the news. Um, yeah, I get why it was there, and I had the absolute same come around too, because enough time has passed by, and yeah. then now it, it's unbelievable that that is happening still in in recent history. But I think when I first saw it too, my my thought was also, well, this is gonna date it, mm-hmm. kind of. You know, now we know the specifically. I felt like I was, I love it. You know, I was loving the film and I was, at the end I was like, oh, I feel like now it just kind of was dated to this specific time in, in, in history. But yeah, watching it this last time, I did have that exact same, like it felt right and it made it more powerful because I, when I first saw it, I didn't know that that was David Duke talking. I didn't like, in my mind, oh, I didn't yeah, yeah. make that connection. Yeah. I don't know why, but this time I'm like, oh, that's, that's, him. that's him. He's there. Yeah. And that's Topher Grace. Yep. Uh, right, right. <laughs> And, and it looks like him a little bit. I, I, it, it does. I mean, you look at them side by side. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. I, I, I will say also, so our draft ended with Ron looking out and there's a burning cross on the hillside. Which is great, yeah. Which is great. And so then what Spike and Kevin did was they added, you know, that the hallway shot. Hmm. Spike Lee Dolly shot, but then reverse is you see the cross framed in the in the in the window, and I just I just that's my favorite shot. That's my favorite moment in the movie, and the transition from and then when you go out to the burning cross, the transition from that to today or you know to Charlottesville mm, mm. as a cinematic sequence. Not saying the Charlottesville footage itself, but the, the the transition to it, the the hallway shot, the cross, the Klansman around, the score, Terrence Blanchard's score, and then the jump is incredibly effective. Mm-hmm. And I think seeing it multiple times, it's probably my favorite part of the movie. So I, I have to say that too. <laughs> yeah, cool. definitely felt it this last time for sure. Yeah. I, th- I think I should just read out exactly what it says in the script mm. because. This is this is the ending. It yeah. just says, exterior UVA campus night. We see footage of neo-Nazis, alt-right, the Klan, neo-Confederates and white nationalists marching, holding up tiki torches, chanting. Th- that was everything in, in the script yeah. that is now such an iconic ending to, yeah. to the then, film. You know, and then that spike in um, Barry going through that footage and, and assembling it. And then also like that Terrence Blanchard score. Mm-hmm. It, it makes a difference, you know? I, I didn't realize that track was actually originally in Inside Man. Oh. And Spike wanted him to take that and use it for, for this one, too. It's a great track. I mean, I, 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 think, the, I think the score is, uh, I, I, is very good throughout. But, um, no, it's great. It's one thing I noticed uh, this time around, too. There's a very memorable piece of music that is used... That's repeated over, uh, and over. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. I really picked up on that. It kind of roots it into that vibe Definitely. in a way. It kind of it, it feel like it's the musical um, essence of Ron in a way. Yeah, that oh, I felt cool. that this time. Yeah, I was listening to the soundtrack for months after the film came out. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, 
Um, so since, you know, you've had this huge success and, you know, it got all this tension and obviously won the Oscar for you guys. And since then, like how, what, what has that meant for you on a personal screenwriting journey? Like, did anything change? Is it still just kind of back to basics? You know, what is the next thing that I really want to say? Did it skew your goal as to what you wanted to work on next? Well, well, first of all, everything changed. But I wouldn't say, you know, people ask, well, how does how did the Oscar change everything? And I, I'm not completely sure yet. I think having a few years in the future will give me that context. But it was more, it, it, it happened in stages when the thing got announced and we kind of became professional screenwriters that it, and that about that time was when production started. And that was about when the script sold because it was an option deal and it, it doesn't sell until they start production in, in our deal. So that was when Charlie and I could quit our day jobs and become professional screenwriters. Around that time, we got agents. Um, that was late 2017. So right now it's early 2020. We've, uh, we've only been full-time screenwriters for a little over two years now, you know? Um, once the thing sold and like got announced, like we became professionals, but it was still like, you end up going on a lot of meetings and then doing a lot of free development and pitching on stuff where you're competing against like five or 10 other writers. And we were fortunate enough after like 10 months to get something. I always like to say like when we, when we sold the script, we became simultaneously full-time screenwriters who had no job, completely <laughs> unemployed. We were just like looking for something. And that one check for the script, it wasn't enough to sustain you for too long, you know? So we had to get that next thing. We got something after, it was almost a year. The really big jump wasn't the Oscar, even though that was huge. It was when the movie came out. The movie came out and it did well commercially based, you know, it wasn't a huge hit, but like next to its budget. Mm -hmm. And then also it did well critically. And if you can write a movie and if you can sell a script, that's huge. If you can sell a script that gets produced, that's even huger. If you can get a sell a script that gets produced by a major filmmaker, that's even huge. If you can do all of that and have it actually be successful, either critically or commercially, that's like a grand slam. And so that was what happened. When, when, when the movie came out after that first weekend, we met with our agents and they're like, hey, what meetings do you want to take? Let us know because you can, you can meet with anybody you want. And then suddenly when we're pitching on stuff, we're not competing against five or 10 other writers. We're maybe competing against one writer or maybe we're not competing against anyone. It's just if we impress the studio enough with our pitch, they'll hire us to do it. It's such a big leap as a screenwriter to get something produced that goes well. Hmm. Um, and then now, you know, after the Oscar, we're just, we're in a very fortunate position where we get to be a little bit choosy on what we want to spend our our time doing it doesn't mean that people are just giving us jobs we still have to do a bunch of upfront work that isn't paid pitch on stuff and, and work out a take and everything but the the opportunities are there both in television and in features that's awesome would you be able to talk about a little bit what you are working on next honestly we're trying to write something good enough that either a filmmaker and or uh major actors want to be in it very cool yeah so what we usually do on the podcast is we're analyzing a screenplay. We tend to look at these five categories, character, dialogue, mm. themes, and then story and plot. So I think we've covered a little bit about the character, but I did have a question specifically about dialogue. Sure. Because what you have going on here 
I feel you have all these different, I don't know if you would call them styles of speech or dialects or however you'd like to call it, but you have the Klansmen, you have black activists, you have the police, you have David Duke, who's a real person and has a recognizable type of uh, oratory style that you can listen back to in the records and stuff like that. And then you also have characters who are pretending to be right. parts of the other groups, such as the undercover police, Ron pretending to be into the black activism at, at a point, and then Flip pretending to be a Klansman. So how did you go about just that? I, did you have to research a lot of dialogue? Did you have to research the kind of slang they'd be using? Honestly, a lot of that was from the book and from Ron. And then the rest was just us and then Spike and Kevin. Um, it's interesting that you say the idea of like Ron having to be undercover when he's on the phone or Flip, you know, having to be undercover in person. There is the aspect of performance. And I think he gets into it and Ron gets to it in the book a little bit. Like when you're going undercover, you're an actor. So uh, it was kind of a fun thing to play with. There's like two layers to it. We're not writing for an actor. We're writing for an actor who's also going to be an actor themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of fun that way because these two guys are, they're good at their jobs. Like they, they make mistakes, but like ultimately like they are good. So like when they're in these situations, like we want them to be good undercover. And like that doesn't mean that there is intention because we want that like for example like Felix to be suspicious. But like for the example, there's that scene where um, Flip is goes to the the house and he's brought down and and he's uh, Felix like shows him like a shotgun and everything. It's very threatening, obviously. Mm. We know the audience knows what's going on. We're not quite sure what Fe if you know we we know that Felix like kind of suspects him or does he like what what we don't know quite we just we know that he's not like the friendliest guy and that he could potentially just shoot him or whatever we know that Flip is I don't know I don't want to use the word nervous but like he's on edge we know Flip is on edge we know that he's going to be digging into his toolbox of undercover tactics or whatever because he's he's already worked for a while like this he's been in similar situations maybe not as perilous as this so he's just going to play the part he's going to be the actor playing the actor and uh felix shows him the gun and he's like yeah i call this the jew killer and flip is like well yo, yeah that's a remington you know oh that's a remington like he has to process that not and not play himself he has to play someone who Right, right, Jew killer, exactly. The cool Remington, yeah. nice. One of the things that I was uh, that was really a joy to see because I read the script this time that I watched it again. I read the script first. Oh, cool. And then I saw the film. Was how Adam Driver really interpreted a lot of that because there's some descriptive words. He's feeling this or he's feeling yeah. that, but then you see Adam Driver do it, and it's so subtle and it's so it's very subtle because he has to be. You wouldn't know he has to be a good actor in that setting. So that was really cool to watch. Yeah. There's so many points in the film, actually, that I noticed. Obviously, you've got the most phenomenal cast available at this point. Right. It, for, as you said, one of the first films you've had made, or the first film you've yeah. had made, it's only the uh, involvement of Jordan Peele and Spike Lee that have been able to give you access to these actors. But you can just see how they brought these things into the role that say someone who isn't at that level 
probably wouldn't have brought in. And they're just all these minor details. Mm-hmm. There's this point where the chief said something like, keep the look after Ron asked, should I shave off my afro to get into the undercover? Yeah. Um, he says, keep the look, but he moves his hands yeah. and kind yeah. of pats around his yeah. head. Yeah. And those little interpretations of those lines of dialogue are there, but there's no direction in, in your screenplay. You're not telling no. the actor what to do there. And it's just amazing what all these different actors brought in. Uh, Mike Buscemi, I think, in particular, brought in loads of really great stuff, especially when he's talking about O.J. Simpson and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And And I feel like that's a good thing for actors for a script not to be that descriptive because i've i've read a lot about actors who and myself included because i do act um you know and whenever i see a script that has too much of a description it almost kind of cages you in into having to perform it a certain way but you know you could always have an actor interpret it different ways and try different things the good thing about you know film is that you can always edit and take the parts that work and don't work completely and apparently spike sets are his style is very like loose and improvisational and he wants these actors to play around with it and you can sort of see you can feel the looseness in the performances mm-hmm. and um that's great because like you want that and if if i'm writing something and uh, an actor kind of puts their own spin on it or just kind of changes it like if it works that's great I might get credit for it anyway, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But nonetheless, I feel like nothing was changed too much. Uh, I felt like most of the dialogue was fairly similar. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, and improv can be, it can be completely subtle, like you were saying, like, like what mm. um, Robert did when the, his hands went. Uh, uh, yeah. And so, so those little things that add dimensions to the scenes and, and to the characters and make the film feel more authentic or more alive or more enjoyable. I will say there's something about Topher Grace's performance that it's just it's very fun to watch those scenes with him. And you were you were asking about challenges before. One of the challenges, I forgot about this. We looked at these scenes that we had down and we're like, a lot of the very crucial scenes in this movie are phone calls. Hmm. Yep. And That's phone true. calls are generally kind of frowned upon because they're kind of considered anti-cinematic. And I could also see how you dramatized some of that already because Ron was mailing stuff to the clan. Exactly. Oh, yeah. To yeah. begin that, with. That he didn't first, just pick didn't up the just phone pick up to the call phone, right? And it's like, mm. what's more boring than a phone call is somebody writing yeah, a letter. Ron, Ron reading out the letter <laughs> as voiceover. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, we couldn't do that. So it's like, all right, well, you know, there's going to be cut back and forth. There might be some split screen, but it's like, okay, why are phone calls considered not cinematic and i don't know i I was i was thinking about this i don't know if you guys have any ideas maybe because it feels like it's more usually an exchange of information that isn't completely dramatic maybe because there's a lack of conflict or it's like you know if if you're going to do a phone call why not just have them in the room together i think it's a bit of that like not having the two people connecting on screen yes and not having that visual exactly okay yeah i i completely agree and so but what i realized is we have a huge advantage and the advantage is in all of these phone calls in this movie, there's dramatic irony. Mm-hmm. The audience knows more than one or both the characters. Mm. Actually, mostly it's the name. We know what Ron knows, but the other side of the conversation has no idea. And so everything has an additional layer of meaning. And so it allows these phone calls to actually work 
dramatically because we're kind of like we're you know ron's the guy we're rooting for and we just we want him to succeed and put one over on him and also there's the layer of conflict of he's fooling this person on the other end of the line and is he going to get found out or is is he going to continue his con like that's always there Mm -hmm. the one phone call that we invented was the the final phone call to to david duke which unfortunately didn't happen. David Duke found out about Ron like in like 2006 or something after a news article was published about him. Well, that long. That, that long, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can only well. imagine him uh, figuring that out. And it, so I think the feeling with that scene was like the movie kind of wants it. Hmm. You know, you kind of want that satisfaction of even though this didn't happen, like you want that to, to close off that loop. And once we figured that out, you know, there's in in the book he talks about after they had the that aura conversation, Ron would, in talking with David Duke, just slip it in, just say aura, and David Duke never picked up on it. Yeah, and so at, I think at one point, very early on, we're we're thinking, you know, that would be kind of funny if he would just throw that in. But it's like when you're making a movie, like you want to make things sharp and clear. So it's like, well, maybe instead of that, we just put that in that final scene because. It, while it would be satisfying for Ron just to come out and say it, if he does the aura thing, you're allowing the audience to kind of make the connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's fun to watch that scene with audiences because when he says aura for the first time in that final, when Ron says it, people start laughing. And it's like, oh, they're making the connection. And it's almost like the movie and the audience have this inside joke yeah, yeah, that yeah. is being paid off yeah. right here. Because you already had your uh, setup. We had the setup earlier, which in itself... Off. It doesn't necessarily feel like a setup because it's such a mm. crazy scene. But it, okay, the best setups are the ones that don't feel like setups at all. You know. Yeah, and that's always the trickiest thing is how do you insert a setup without giving it away? Exactly, making it completely obvious. Yeah, cool. Yeah, going back to dialogue, one of the things I noticed when I was reading the script was it was a bit of a page turner. Even though I had seen the film, there's just some fluidity that comes with the dialogue. Nothing seems like too much or too little. It always just feels like the right amount of exchange of information between the characters. So when writing dialogue, do you guys usually just play the characters and kind of write dialogue that way? Or is it more mechanical where, you know, you sit down and just like write the dialogue that you think should be spoken? Our process is we'll uh, outline together, like in some sort of shared document, very detailed outlines, and then we'll split it apart. Like one of us will write act two, one of us will write acts one and three, and then we'll swap and then we'll swap again. So, Dialogue writing, we do that kind of individually. Hmm. And the way that I like to do it is kind of what we were talking about with the the flow thing, entering that flow and not typing the dialogue straight into the screenwriting software. Because when you're dealing with screenwriting software, you're kind of like worrying about format and everything. I don't want any of that to get in the way of just the the raw things that are coming to me. Uh, Because when I'm writing dialogue and also description, but mainly dialogue, I want to be able to just like watch the scene in my head, listen to the characters talk and like transcribe what they're saying. So I'll usually open up a text document and just really, really, really loosely just get it all down Mm. and then later clean it up. So it's one of those things where it's in stages. The first stage is very loose, just get it all down and then you edit, then you get more mechanical. So you're kind of playing the characters in your head at first and then more mechanical and saying like actually does this, this doesn't hit right or this goes on too long i almost always overwrite dialogue i think a lot of people mm. are like that because it's like you want to kind of get into the rhythm of a natural conversation and then you realize oh movies aren't real life 
we can make this more concise. We can make this punchy. We can take this line out. So would you say part of your process is you like to have more material and then cut it down because yeah. you, you referenced everything needing to be sharp. Is that, is that more of your editor's mind coming in later and yes. sharpening it up? Absolutely. Uh, I don't want to be too much of an editing focused at the beginning because that mm. inhibits the, the, the free-flowing part of, of just getting that, those thoughts down. I really think someone out there is listening and thinking, that's what I needed to do. I'm just going to open up a text box and just... Just, just go. Yeah. <laughs> just go at it, yeah. And I think one of the things that I would often do is, and still do sometimes, is that, okay, this information needs to be conveyed, and sometimes it would come out too literal from, like, the character's, uh, you know, perspective. And then sometimes you realize, like, the, all they need to do is just say a word, yeah. and that's conveying everything. Yeah. You know, so, but yeah, I do the same thing too. It's just like, ah, it's too on the nose. Everyone's saying what they're supposed to be saying. And then you start kind of like playing with the, and I think the more you know your characters too, it, it feel helps a lot. Completely. The more you know your characters, but then also thinking like an actor or being an actor. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a huge advantage because then you're really, when you're acting, you're literally in the, in the skin of this oh, character. Oh yeah. yeah. And you're like, well, if, if I'm saying this as an actor, it doesn't feel right. You, you know, as an actor, when it doesn't feel right. Because you're, be, you're, you're being that character. And so just looking through the, the, looking at the world through their eyes, it's like, well, why would they say that? Or why would they do this? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't, doesn't feel right. So let's change this so it does work from this character's mm. perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of go about it that way now, uh, which makes me look really crazy. You know, <laughs> I'm just going through like three different like personalities and like in my room. But it's really fun because then you start creating a sort of, energy i guess where you start feeling what that scene should be about yeah 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 uh so we covered dialogue story uh themes did you guys have a couple of themes that you guys were looking at while you were writing it yeah it's it's funny the finished film i feel like has so many themes see he's tackling a lot right the script that we wrote was not like for, for example we were talking earlier like the the whole thread of like film criticism and the power of like cinema to influence people in definitely in the finished film not in our script i would say what we wrote originally was pretty much a true story undercover thriller with some comedic elements and what spike did is he 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 took that and he he made it into this thing that was about like so much, right? In terms of theme, so the, the way that I look at theme is I personally don't always start there. I usually start with either character or story, usually both because it, really character and story, especially when we're talking about films, there's really no difference. Character is story, story is character. But then thematic material naturally emerges. I wouldn't say I always use that as like my, some writers are like, that's my North Star. I'll, I'll always you know, it, is this scene commenting on that theme? If not, we have to change things. I don't know if I always work that way. That feels um, limiting. Yeah. It, it, it feels it feels limiting. But then also, so we have to talk about what theme means. Mm. Is theme like a general subject? Is theme an argument? I don't know if I completely ha- have landed on that. I don't know what you, if you guys have an opinion when you say well, theme. I feel like, well, for me, theme... Because I, I totally feel you on that. To me, it's character and story and a general idea of what it is that I'm trying to say. Yeah. 
And then sort of it'll organically kind of, oh, okay, maybe this is what I'm trying to say or this is kind of what it's about. I think theme for me really means like what am I saying in terms of essentially the voice of what the extension of what the film is to you. I said that really bad. No, no, I, um, <laughs> I like that. The voice of what it, of what it is. Yeah, so yeah. pretty much like the story and the characters are the extension of what it is that you yourself are trying to say right? in a way. I, I think that could be a theme. Uh, so I, I was just kind of wondering if that is something that you factored into, but you already answered that. Yeah, it 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 does always factor in one way or or another. Um, it it might not always be the thing that I am consciously thinking about when I'm writing a scene, but mm-hmm. it's something that kind of em, em, emerges. And in the final film, I think what we were kind of going for does definitely remain intact among all this other stuff, the, the themes about uh, cinema, uh, through, uh, you know, using using cinema to, to change minds, but then also connecting the past with the present. And then kind of, you know, what we were going for, which is the idea that the fight against racism isn't just like one group's fight, it's everyone's fight. Mm-hmm. And in order to combat it, like it, you need cooperation mm-hmm. amongst everyone. Not just those people who are affected a lot or those people that are affected a little bit or those people who feel like they're not affected at all. It, it is actually everyone's fight. And I think that, among other things, like that does come across in the finished film. Our script, because of, I guess, the focus on the, the buddy cop element kind of is a little bit more of that, um, I'd say, more than anything else and then yet but you could argue like that the charlottesville footage at the end underlines very much that Mm -hmm. theme too among other things it's interesting with ron actually because in the way he wrote the story himself he talks about being asked about the investigation after it had happened and being asked well what did you really achieve you kept tabs on remember the bombing didn't ever actually happen so he was being asked, well, what did you really achieve? You played a prank on David Duke and you got some intel on the clan, got two guys removed that were working in NORAD, NORAD but yeah. did you really achieve anything? And the way he put it was, what I achieved was that no one who lived in Colorado Springs ever had to see a burning cross. And some of these people had moved here from the South. Other people had strong memories of racism in the past and segregation. And I made sure that they and their families didn't have to see that. I think with the book's version of Ron, you get something maybe a bit closer to his theme. That sense of being able to change things just a little bit from inside is sufficient. And he also tells the story of when he met Ralph Abernathy, who was a civil rights leader, a friend of Martin Luther King, and had come to Colorado Springs to protest a trial of a 15-year-old boy. The 15-year-old boy, who was African-American, had shot a white man who was uh, a father, and Ron was his, his bodyguard during the time that he was in Colorado Springs. And he took Ralph aside and said to him in his hotel room, the protest groups and the churches have been lying to you and telling you this is a race issue. And I'm a policeman, I know the case. This kid, when he was arrested, said he just wanted to find out what it was like to kill someone. And this has nothing to do with it. He was going to shoot someone that day. It didn't matter who. And 
Ralph just said, well, that changes things, doesn't it? And got up and went and talked to the leaders of the church. And so that kind of portrayal of Ron, he's someone who's very much in tune with these very minor dynamics going on between what some people might jump to the strong stereotypes on either side. Yeah. He seems to be able to toe this line down the middle and see what's really going on beneath it a little bit. Yeah, it's a, it's a nuanced take on things. And that, you know, I mean, that partially comes from the fact that he's a cop, you know? Yeah. And, and, and he was a cop for a long time. Uh, that was his career. He's retired now, but, you know, he, he's doing that type of work mm. for, I guess, since he was 19. He was a cadet when he was 19, yeah. you know? So that's it's a very interesting, specific perspective. How much time did you get to spend with him? Uh, so at first it was just phone calls, and then he... he you sure it was him on the other line? <laughs> <laughs> I think we joked about yeah. that a few times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but once you start talking to him, like, oh, you know it's him. Uh... He came, when we were working on this initial draft, he came to Newport Beach. I think uh, it's, it, it, the publisher was living there. So we, we all met at the publisher's house and we, we, we spoke to Ron for like three, four hours, you know, just interviewing him, asking further questions about certain things. And then, you know, a lot of phone calls, a lot of phone calls. I think maybe the first time that after that, that we saw him in person was at the the New York premiere of the film. So it, it had been a little while. And then like, because of all the award stuff and he was, you know, he was at the award stuff. We were at the award stuff. We, we hung out with him. You know, he was there at the Oscars. He was up on stage with us, which is very cool. Now he lives in um, El Paso where he's from. Mm. Uh, he lives there with his wife and they were doing a screening a year after the movie had come out. They were doing a screening there as part of a local film festival. And so we went to El Paso and did like a me, Charlie, Sean Reddick, who was the, you know, the, the original producer whose wife is from El Paso and Ron, the four of us, we did a, a Q and a before, before the film. So yeah, so it's been cool and it's been fun seeing Ron. So the, the, the version of the book that you read it's not the book that the version that we originally found. That was a um, a major publisher re-release that happened, uh, you know, with to coinciding with the the movie coming out. And so Ron became a New York Times bestseller, and now he <laughs> travels all around, you know, speaking and stuff. <laughs> uh, I did think that was interesting. Actually, in the book, it said that this is going to be a film. Yeah, and I thought. But how did David and and uh, that would have been weird, huh? Yeah. How did David and Charlie read this then? But it it, it was like telling them at the start what they needed to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this wow. should be a film. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was just it was a, it was a new <laughs> version. But do, are you quite happy with how you portrayed him in the screenplay, regardless of however it comes across on screen? Because I mean, clearly he isn't just this rookie twenty-one-year-old in in the film. He, there, there are some natural adjustments for sure there, to be made there's but. deviations and it, it's more important that the spirit of him and the investigation come across and I, mm -hmm. I think that that does i think the fact that when we were working on it that ron was very heavily involved were good and then the fact that spike came on to not only direct but also to you know write uh, you know ron loves spike and so um you hear horror stories about real life figures being turned into films and them hating the films. Ron loves the movie. That's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah that he's, is great. he's seen it like 
I think he said like 30 times because wow. he does a lot of Q&As and he'll, he'll come and, and watch the movie. So um, he's very happy with the movie, which is great. And just to talk about adaptation and that spirit that you just mentioned, because that's something that I did an episode recently with Robert Edgar, who has just written a book called Adaptation for Screenwriters. He's a professor at York St. John in England. And we talked about No Country for Old Men, adapting that from the Cormac McCarthy novel to the screen. And that was the major part of our conversation really was what really is adaptation? What is the spirit, that elusive yes. word? What are your thoughts on that, either in reference to Black Klansman or just your thoughts in general? How how do you like to think about adaptation in, in that sense? That's a great question. And also because, you know, after Black Klansman, a lot of the things that we've been sent, almost just about everything that we're working on now is an adaptation of one sort of another. But there's different types of adaptation. There's memoirs, novels, true stories, short story, magazine article, even a true story that doesn't have any underlying material you could consider an adaptation because it's an adaptation of real events. The thing I always come back to is it has to work as a movie. It has to be a movie. So you are when you're adapting something, there is something that already exists. You use it to the extent that it helps you. And the parts that do not help you, you do not use. At a certain point, you have to throw away the thing you, because when you're, when you're too faithful, and we've seen it before in a, movies, maybe even TV shows, definitely movies, movies because there's only you know, two hours. Mm. When you're too faithful, you can get into trouble. You have to throw that away and make that work as a movie. There's also nuance to that because there's certain true stories that you don't want to take so many liberties with. Selma is an example. That's a very accurate movie and you don't want to take a lot of liberties with something like that. Mm. Other things, it's I think it's, it's about making the movie good, but then, yes, tr staying true to the spirit of the thing. But like, what is the spirit, mm. right? Is it theme? Maybe it's theme. Maybe, is it tone? Is it maybe just like a, a, a character? I think it's just, I think it's different in every situation and you know it when you see it. Just like dialogue that's, yeah. that does not work and you know it when you read it. If this thing feels like it's the thing, you know it when you see it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of how sometimes, especially in history, societies have used parables and metaphors to tell truths yes. without just saying it's not codified like the, like the Bible or the Torah, just simply telling a story. And within that story is the, the message that you want to get across. Yeah. That's in, that's in it, in a way. That's kind of a spirit as well. And I was trying to explain Black Klansman yesterday, the difference between the book and the film from what I saw it. And I thought, well, if you've seen the film, you kind of do know the story. You might not know exactly the things that happened precisely as they happened yeah. and as the way Ron tells them yeah. in the book. But you do know the story. Yeah, you you understand that this he was a police officer. He he did do this investigation. With he posed as a Klansman. All of this stuff is generally there. Yeah, and is generally in that same area. So it's captured it. It's captured the story. You could repeat what you saw in the film, and you could read the book and repeat more or less the story you'd read, and you'd probably come 
in rewording it, you'd come across with quite a similar account of more or less what happened. I, I think that's a good way to describe yeah. it. Yeah, I guess it, like you're right. It is a bit of a feeling. Like you know it when you see it. I don't know if you've seen Steve Jobs at the one directed by Danny Boyle, written by, written Aaron, by Aaron Sorkin. Sorkin. Yeah, uh, which is kind of alluding to that. Like obviously, it, it's not a literal adaptation of his life. Like all that stuff happened to a degree, but not in the way it happened. But nonetheless, it's kind of painting. I think it was. Um, Aaron Sorkin, the way he described it, was more of like a, a painting or a portrait of a man rather than like yes. a retelling of yes. how his life went. And, and you, you you get the essence. Exactly. It. And by the way, what a great choice that he made to, it was like the b- b- before three major launches, right? Oh yeah, it was amazing. I uh, love that film. Right. It, it's yeah. so good as opposed to a traditional biopic, which we don't really need. When like, I saw it, it was so, I don't know, it was just like this bolt of energy. Like, what is this? This is great. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it also probably depends on like what it is you're adapting. If it's like a very personal story of a one human being, then you're probably a little bit more careful as to how you're going to adapt that as opposed to something else. Definitely. Yeah. Plot, story, theme. And that's a good one that you just introduced. Tone. I don't think we talk about that often in screenwriting because that's usually portrayed in the film because it's more of a visual editing music. it's almost as if you could change the tone when adapting it for yeah, the screen like yeah like visually but, but even it's writing there. it is though, there in the writing yeah even yeah, writing you can set definitely. a tone um so how did, is that something that you you think of as well when you're trying to put together uh, a script completely yeah mm-hmm. because we're ultimately when you're writing a script it's always you're always thinking about the person who's reading it right mm-hmm. the audience mm-hmm. so it's like how are they going to feel um uh are they going to be engaged at this point um uh are they going to be con- confused ever are they going to be bored are they going to not know why this is happening do we need to change that or are we going to give them a, the answer to this thing uh, a scene later and are they going to like ultimately buy it are they going to buy that this is happening or this character is saying this or that this scene is happening and that all all of that is also related to tone and and sort of you could argue genre too because genre and tone are constantly mm. in conversation with themselves so uh, tone can kind of be a, a weird elusive thing but the, the way i see it is it's just like how do you want this reader to, to feel as they're moving through the the this story like if it's if it's more just as an example if it's a more comedic tone they're going to forgive certain things. If it's a more intense tone, they're going to have certain expectations that are going to be going, you know, an, an, another way. And so, yeah, it's 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 something that you're, I feel like, always thinking about, but it'll come across when you're reading and editing your work and thinking, like, actually, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't fit mm. in with what with with what we're trying to do here. Yeah, it's kind of almost like a, an emotional map maybe. Oh that yeah, I like that, that you're kind of providing for for the audience a bit of well a blueprint yeah. of what eventually is going to come to be. I like that. Okay. So I think for a final question to to round off the episode, can you think of one lesson you learned during this whole process of of Black Landsman that you'd like to share? One lesson don't be precious with the work, <laughs> with mm. the writing. This is a collaborative, and I feel like people will always learn this. This is a collaborative process, a collaborative job, collaborative medium. 
and it's all in service of the final product. That's a good one. Yeah. 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 David, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us in the lovely uh, Fairfax Village Studios in Los Angeles. Truly appreciate it. Of course. Yeah, this yeah. is fun. Thanks for having me in. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, your next project. So do I. <laughs> I, think, I think the world is waiting. Yeah. <laughs> That's all for this week. Please do make sure you are subscribed on your favorite podcast app and following us on Instagram, Letterboxd, or Twitter where you can find news and updates about what we are doing. Stay safe and thanks again for listening.